Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Adoptees podcast. So today I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Angie. And you, you, dear listeners, are in for a treat today because Angie is one of those big-hearted ladies that we have on the show. We only have people with huge hearts. And I know that the topic that she's come up with to discuss today is going to be well, it's going to blow. It's going to blow your socks off in a good way. So I'm really looking forward to uh, to today, Angie. Angie, welcome to the show, and thank you very much for uh, making time to chat. Uh, to chat. Thanks, I'm looking forward to. It. Thank you. It's so good to be with you this morning. Um, so, could you introduce yourself, uh, Angie, to the listeners? Tell tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Um, I am an adopted person, and I was adopted a long time ago, so many of the practices have evolved. Um, I live in the United States, and part of my way of introducing myself often is to say that my involvement with social services began before I was even born, based on the fact that I was born to a teenager in the mid-1950s, and um, there were many decisions made for that teenager and myself by people in the social service industry. It really motivated me in many ways to pursue a human service career. And I've worked now for 44 years in different roles in human services, a lot of it directly related to families though and adoption issues. So currently I am the director of a uh, small independent adoption agencies and I'm dealing mostly with private adoptions of infants and young children. So it's brought me kind of full circle, both professionally and emotionally to be dealing with this, this particular aspect of my life. Wow. Yeah. Well, where to start? I, I, I want, um, uh, when we had our chat a couple of months ago now, what, what really blew me away was this, um, the relationship that you had with your your birth mother. So, could you tell the tell the listeners a, a little oh, bit? Oh, sure. That? Yep. Um, I again, many adoptees search for their birth parents and are looking for different things. So, I searched at a time, and again, this was before to show you again, kind of the changes that have evolved. This was before the internet and computers, um, even before cell phones. But there is always a process to find. Um, you know, details out about yourself. I would say it's almost like the ancestry.com right now where you can search for relatives. Um, but I was going through a process where I was experiencing some medical changes and encouraged by the medical community to search for medical information about myself that was not included in any records that I had. So basically what I had to do was to fill out forms um, the adoption agency that had placed me in foster care and then facilitated my adoption was contacted and I was connected with a social worker. And she was able to kind of walk me through the search process. And in that process, I wrote a letter that could be read to my birth parent or parents. And I basically said, you knew me when my name was Susan. My adoptive parents changed my first name but kept my birth name as my middle name. And I kind of explained a little bit in more detail what I was looking for. And um, at this point in time, many of the things that I needed could be done um, anonymously, or, or even getting bone marrow compatibility testing done and other things that I was looking for could be done by numbers and not names. But at the end of this letter, I offered my birth mother the opportunity to see me or meet me if that was something she felt she would benefit from. And I allowed her to choose because I didn't know where I was finding her in her life. And um, I had a little experience at that point that sometimes when people get what I call caught when they're found, um, they get very defensive and are fearful. So I was trying to lay out exactly what I was looking for. So she did, she was very uh, pleased about being able to meet with me and the social worker arranged for us to meet. I met her at the adoption agency. It was a full service agency. So they had like a family therapy room that we used. And the day that I met her, she brought my three brothers and my sister, um, her sister and brother-in-law. My brothers were married, so they brought their wives. And I had this huge room of people to meet. 
Uh, and I agreed to do it because I didn't know how healthy I was going to be or how much longer I was going to live at that point in time. But I wouldn't necessarily recommend that to anyone else. It's very emotionally overwhelming. Wow. So I met with my birth mother and her name is Mary. And um, I had questions I needed to ask her that were very personal and I didn't really want to do it in a group. And after about five minutes of talking with her, I knew where my heart came from and my worldview came from. It came from her, it really did. Um, and that was somewhat exciting. The disappointing thing, and we all have that, that happens is that I didn't necessarily resemble her. You know, sometimes we're looking for that physical resemblance connection too. Um, and so it, it was very interesting. And then the next person I met was my brother, Mark. And Mark is um, not that much younger than I am. And so uh, he, he uh, owned a, a bar business and um, came and looked at me and goes, yeah, I'm so glad to have an older sister. I'm glad I'm not the oldest anymore. He had this great personality. And I looked at him and said, yeah, but it doesn't make you the best looking one now, does it? And so we had this instant connection. And then I met my brother, Brian. Um, Brian is... Um, as I say, you got to put a few beers in Brian before he can relax enough to talk to you. But we talked about dogs. We found out that we own dogs. And he's a very sweet man and a very sweet soul with a, a big heart. And then I met my brother, Glenn. And Glenn um, was a school teacher and a counselor. So his questions to me were very um, therapeutic. Did I feel attached or abandoned? And, you know, we, we got into that. And then I got to meet my sister, Lisa the one that made me the most nervous because my birth mother Mary had commented to me that she knew God had forgiven her for giving me away when he gave her Lisa. And Lisa's uh, again, significantly younger than I am. And so that was um, good in some ways. Lisa and I are, are very um, compatible and close and you know, as, as women right now and as sisters, but I thought she might be the one that would be the most affected by this because she only grew up with brothers. And then I met my aunt and my uncle and my, my aunt and uncle were asked at one point after I was born to adopt me by my birth mom because they were married and they chose not to, which was a good thing. And my aunt was crying and going, oh, if I would have known you would have turned out so nice, Angie, I, I would have kept you. And again, in my true spirit, I said, but Anne, if you kept me, I might not have turned out so nice. So there were issues there that I was queuing in on, on very quickly. So that was our initial encounter. But as I shared with you, Simon, one of the things I did to protect myself that day is I drove someone else's car so that they couldn't find me through a driver's you know, plate license on the car. Um, I only told them my name was Susan. I didn't really give them my full identity. And I made sure it was a time-limited visit. I had things planned before and after, so I, I didn't um, want to linger in some ways because this is a very emotional experience. Um, and then from there, we slowly felt out um, you know, what this relationship could be and where it could go. So that's kind of how things started. Yeah. And you were telling me that last time that that relationship lasted 29 years. Yes. Yes. Uh, I was very integrated into this family. And what I learned was that my birth mother was very uncharacteristic of women in that era, in that when her children became teenagers, she told them about me. And so this family was much more prepared for me and wanting me to embrace me and to bring me in than I was prepared to meet them and embrace them and bring them into my life. Um, so that was the um, issue that I had to, to work on for a while too, was you know that this family had been waiting. They literally had been waiting for me. Um, and one of the things that happened was my birth mom at one point said, well, you know, um, you're 36 years old. What took you so long? Why did you wait? Um, and we were talking a little bit about that. And then I said to her, did you ever try to find me? And just to show you how significant some of these adoption pieces can be is um, all the color drained out of her face. And, you know, it was like she went back to the courtroom when she was terminating her parental rights. In Wisconsin, women need to go to court and testify in front of a judge. 
And she goes, well, the judge told me if I ever tried to find you, he'd put me in jail. And I, I, I just, I, I couldn't face going to jail as well as losing, you know, having lost you too. So we never know where some of these um, adoption experiences will come in. So I knew that it was a, a very significant thing for her to have opened her heart to her children. And then also to me to try to bring us together in some way to be able to acknowledge that this life experience had happened to her, but also that I was um, one of her children. And um, fascinating, fascinating how you took the you took the defensive moves. Yeah. Um, uh, as uh, you know, from a protection space, and uh, you know, it, it's like when people go on. On online dates, don't they? On uh, you know, on blind dates, they they arrange for yeah. somebody to call them, so sure. they've got a get out. And uh, there's there's real wisdom. There's real wisdom in 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 there because you're safe either way, aren't you? Yeah. You're safe if you don't use the get out, and you're safe if you need to use the get out. Um, right. Right. Yeah. So. Um, how was the what was what was going on with your um, your mum and dad at this stage or your mom and dad at this stage? Uh, were they still around? Were they supportive of this? Did they know? Did you keep them in the dark or what was going on? Yeah, um, I chose not to tell them that this was something that was happening. They knew I was searching for medical information and they knew that I was reaching out for certain things. But in my adoptive family, um, it was not okay to be talking about these things. And again, this was a long time ago. And they were given advice sometimes too, that as I look back, um, my mom and dad um, adopted me because their parish priest told them to save their marriage. They needed to have a child. They were struggling. Um, and when they couldn't conceive a child, they chose to adopt a child. And today, if someone would come in to my agency and we'd be talking about that, that would be something where we would probably encourage them to go back for some marriage counseling and resolve some other issues before we would start pursuing a child for them. Um, and I knew very quickly that there were things that would only hurt my mom and dad. And I, that was not my purpose of searching for my birth family. And at times you can't change the characteristics of your adoptive family either. Um, you know, I knew very quickly that my adoptive parents loved me very much. What I discovered later on was that my adoptive mom in particular didn't like me. And there's a significant difference between liking your children and loving your children sometimes. And so that at times became this core issue. And that was in some way my way of protecting both of them. This was not something that was necessarily going to impact their lives directly and I didn't think they would um, necessarily deal with this in a positive way. So again, this was about me and I had to make decisions for myself. Um, the way I framed a lot of my earlier, um, I guess, um, feelings about this path that I was going down was that it was very much like meeting my um, husband's family for the first time because you know, you're supposed to be related to them, but you don't know if you're really going to like them or not like them or if they're going to like you. And there's all of these things where you have to explore this new relationship. And you're often very curious um, and you're often very dedicated because, again, this becomes your family. And how do you explore those relationships within your family? So I did look at um, my relationship with my birth mom very similarly to the relationship I had with my um husband's stepmother. And fortunately for Mary, uh, Donna, who was um, my husband's stepmom, was just a very wonderful woman and we bonded very strongly. And um, I used a lot of my reference points with, from my relationship with Donna with my birth mom. And it was the same with brothers and sisters. Um, my husband had quite a large set of siblings. And so I had met many of his siblings and you know they were diverse too, just like mine. And so it gave me, again, a reference point to be able to say, OK, well, this is how we can start. And then from there, you just grow into that relationship. 
there's a there's an incredible mix of wisdom uh heart and logic to the whole way that you um uh, and a balance across all those different things that's uh it's incredible to 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 see i don't know whether you don't know whether you see that Sometimes I do. I've always been grateful that I didn't have this experience until I was in my 30s because I had lived a lot of life by then. And so I had reference points of other life experiences that had maybe turned out well and some that were very challenging. And so to see this as another opportunity to be able to grow into um, what did I really see as family and how would we be able to explore that and build upon what what does that mean for us? And I'm talking about my birth family now. Yeah. Um, um, because every once in a while, even now, sometimes my three brothers and my sister and I will be talking and they'll go, well, yeah, you remember that, right? And I'll look at them and go, no, that was before you knew me. You know, so there's there's caveats and things that happen in all families, just like if you're the oldest or the youngest sibling, sometimes you there's things that have happened that you either have experienced or not. So, you know, and that, that's kind of, I, I just laugh and I go, yeah, that was pre-Angie. So yeah. we, we've made a joke out of it. I don't become defensive and angry that they aren't acknowledging that we well, should have known that. And why would you say that? You know, mine is the kind of go, oh, really? Well, tell me about it. Um, I have a good example with my brother, Mark, who owns the bar. He um, uh, has a lot of regulars. It's in a small town, or I should say a mid-sized town in, in Wisconsin. It's in Oshkosh. And um, I used to stop in from time to time and uh, visit him there. And one night I was sitting at his bar with him talking to one of his regular customers, Joe. And Joe said to me, well, Angie, what was Mark like when he was five? You know, we were in a conversation. I said, you know, Joe, that's a great question. And I called Mark over. I said, Joe and I want to know, Mark, what were you like when you were five? You know, Joe's kind of looking at me and looking at us. And we were able to tell our story. And I said, because I can tell you what, you know, Mark was like at 35, but I don't know what he was like at five. And so that, that at times is another way of engaging people to talk about a life experience that you can't always tell by looking at us. So, you know, again, when Mark says, this is my older sister, um, there's an assumption always made that, that I've been around him yeah. all of those years. And I wasn't. Yeah. Um, that's a great story. Uh, I want to just take you back a couple of a couple of minutes, uh, just for the listeners here, right? Um, because you said uh, a, a beautiful phrase. You said opportunity to grow. Yes. So uh, the, the that's I guess what we're all looking for, aren't we? I mean, um, we're looking for an opportunity to grow. I hope that um, when I'm listening to podcasts, which I do a lot, and and uh, audio books, probably. I don't know, a couple of hours a day, probably, you know, when I'm walking the dog, uh, mm -hmm. when I'm in the car, um, I'm looking for an opportunity to grow. So, um, I, I, and, it, and it's great. One of the things that I've, uh, has been clear to me right from the get-go is that the people that come on this uh, podcast are looking for opportunities to grow. So another way of putting that is that they're curious. Yes. Uh, that they're curious. And, um, uh, you know, it's curiosity killed the cat, you know, curiosity. <laughs> like, so, you know, for me to be um, 54 and still curious, I, I say I see that as a, a as a good sign because I don't want to grow into a grumpy old man like <laughs> I, I see around me. You know, the yeah, grumpy old men are set in, are set in their ways. Uh, I, yeah, I'm set in some of my some of my ways like walking the dog listening to podcasts for a couple of hours swimming <laughs> i am sat in those ways but hopefully i'm kind of less rigid in my thinking you know i for me the the most uh exhilarating moments are when i um rather than beating myself up for not having seen something before is when i laugh at, yeah. how, at how stupid um, the thoughts in my head have been, uh, yeah. Right, right. 
Um, and I think too, surrounding the ability to grow into families or family opportunities too. Um, we often are uh, able to find more than one family in a lifetime. And you know, the, the social acceptable way at the time when this experience happened is you, you, know, you joined a family through birth, through marriage through adoption, things like that. So there was some reference points there. But as you said, I had also done a lot of thinking as I do, I tend to um, research and think about things. And a lot of it is self-protectionism or the ability, like you said, to be curious and say, well, how would I feel if this happened? How would I feel if that happened? Um, sometimes people have accused me of being over-prepared, but it's also done um, something for me where I have, um, I, I'm not as disappointed sometimes as I see other people who go into uh, maybe a new relationship or a new situation without having thought through some things and come out with, oh, I never thought it would be like that. Um, and, and I've had some of that. Um, it, it's again, the disenchantment of adult life that we all face at some point. But I had uh, thought through in my head, you know, the what ifs. Yeah. So one the, the preparation kind of leads me on to, to the, the theme for today because you came up this with this, um, this, this phrase that I hadn't heard before uh, and it was grief and was it disenfranchised grief? Yes, disenfranchised grief. grief yeah. So um, what, what, what is it? Well, you know, depending on how you define it, I did find a scholarly definition of it and it's grief that is not acknowledged by society or minimized as unimportant and one of the things that um, it also kind of looks at is particularly with adoption there's not necessarily the same um, socially recognized rituals when we're, we're talking about what happens in adoptions to uh, birth parents or uh, the child so as an example one of the things that we offer our, our birth families um, and adoptive families is uh, a, a level of openness and adoption today where they can meet each other and become involved even to the point of the um, adopting family being part of the birth or being at the hospital when the baby's born. Um, I, was, I was raised in a Christian faith, so one of the things that had been a Christian ritual and, uh, is baptism. And since at times the birth parent is not necessarily going to be acknowledged or participating in that, we have a, a small kind of family ritual that can occur in the hospital if they want of, you know, words being said over the child or something being said that's meaningful, maybe an exchange of gifts, but it's an acknowledgement of all of these people being parents to this child. And so sometimes using that as maybe a, a common example, um, that, that doesn't always happen. And that's where some of that disenfranchised grief can come in because it is not customary to go to a hospital and have a baby and leave without your baby and then move on with your life and just uh, be told, you know, forget this ever happened and move along, which has been historically part of adoption. It's not part of adoption anymore. So that's where I see some of this disenfranchised grief coming in. And, one of the other things too, even earlier than that, is that many women who place children for adoption do not celebrate their pregnancies. These are often not planned pregnancies, and there's you know sometimes more stress um, in the the nine months that that pregnancy is occurring. It could even be down to not having a safe place to live, food to eat, um, some of the basic needs that um, women. Know, just need to live. It can be many other factors in their lives that they may keep this pregnancy hidden. They may not acknowledge the pregnancy themselves um, as women and so don't get prenatal care. All of this gets mixed into that disenfranchised grief. Yeah. And how does how did this affect you as an ad adopted person? I think? Um, well, that's, that's kind of interesting. I'll tell you another uh, story. There was a, a question that I asked my birth mom at one point after knowing her for probably about five years, and it took her another five years to answer it. 
Um, in my quest to become a parent, I have had eight pregnancies and six miscarriages. And so um, for anyone who has gone through infertility things, at times we know exactly where we got pregnant. So there's a reason my son likes baseball fields. Uh, and there's other things like that that um, can be involved. And so um, I asked her, where was I conceived? And I don't know, Simon, if you would go home and ask your parents that and what kind of response you'd even get. Um, but it was a question that I needed, I, I was curious about. And, you know, five years later, we're, we're at lunch one day, my sister and my birth mother and I are talking and she looked at me and she goes, it was in the back seat of a car and it was a one night stand. Are you happy? And I looked at her and I said, well, now I have the information and yeah, I'm happy that I have the information. And I said, Mary, how many women have done that with a very different outcome? than what you had. And, and we went on to explore some of that. But that was part of her disenfranchised grief. She was embarrassed and ashamed by how she got pregnant. Um, you know, all of these things get wrapped up into that. And I'm just grateful that even after five years, she was able to answer my question. But we all sometimes need time to process and take the risk and see what the See if we're willing to risk maybe the worst outcome. I think she was afraid I would would leave and not talk to her or think that she, she was not a good person, and that was never my intent. Yeah. Mm. Um. So that's you. You've you've talked a little bit about or a, a fair bit about her disenfranchised grief, and you've touched on. You've touched on on your own. Can um, you talked about it not being acknowledged by, not being acknowledged by society? Um, what 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 does that mean to you from your own disenfranchised grief? If I sure. use your, you talked about you know obviously eight eight pregnancies and and, and six six miscarriage. What? Well, there, there at times are things uh, that we all say that, you know, we may feel uh, would bring someone comfort or help. Um, but I did have a family member say to me at one point when I was having my miscarriages, is, you know, Angie, I don't know why you're trying to have children. God's punishing you for being illegitimate. Why would you think he'd give you a child? And it's comments like that that at times you really have to think through. My being an illegitimate child, and for those who, who want to know how I perceive or how I define it is, I was born um, to a single parent outside of marriage. And there again, socially at the time I was born, this was just not accepted. You either married the person who um, you had fathered your child or you placed your child for adoption. There wasn't a lot of um, easy ways to be able to parent singly at that point. And so that that's a very deeply ingrained issue for me of being illegitimate. And if you think about just that term in general, it's not just being born outside of a, a marriage, but sometimes your illegitimacy is, you know, do I have the right to a college education? Do I have a right, you know, to do certain things that other people do? And is it legitimate enough? Um, as we explore some of our own disenfranchised grief, um, what I've identified about myself is I tried to be too perfect. I was an overachiever. Um, I tried to make sure that I could show everybody that I could do everything very, very well. And part of it was because I was afraid of abandonment and I was afraid of failure because of this illegitimate piece that is, you know, part of me. Um, there was a politician in the United States at one point that wanted to bring back the stigma of illegitimacy to children in the 1990s as part of some legislation. And what that brought to my mind immediately is, well, then make the parents illegitimate too. You know, the child, the child didn't have a choice. They did not choose to do this. They did not choose to come here. They're, they're kind of a consequence of these other two individuals' behavior. And, and if you can stay, again, curious and not judgmental about that, um, we try to conform a lot of these issues around this disenfranchised grief 
and frame it in another way that makes um, social sense for other people. Um, and we don't always fit conveniently in those definitions. Yeah. Wow, there's so much there. Um, the thing that popped into my head was the the that you know the um, the criticism from that that uh, that woman who said that you shouldn't be trying for your own kids. Yeah, and you know sometimes you get at other people's beliefs. I I think the thing that I was grateful for, and I've had this experience with other family members, is there's two ways that I've reacted to things like that. Um, uh, number one, it is very painful to hear, but in another way, I'm very grateful to have them say that to me because then I understand and I know a little bit more about their reference point. I can stop sometimes either arguing with them or I can, I can educate them and I can, I can say, I'm sorry you feel that way. And, and this was my response. I said, I'm sorry you feel that way, but I don't agree with you. And you develop a way of, again, um, taking care of yourself or, or expressing your views too. And at times you have to agree to disagree. Yeah. Um, but it does, it does bring up these um, sometimes out of the blue, very painful statements that people, you know, were trying, she was trying to comfort me and that was hardly a comfort. Um, but in her own way, I had to look at it from that perspective too, is that she was trying to comfort me. I just had to let her know that that wasn't comforting at all. There's um, something that's popping into my head. Did you ever hear about a guy called, did you ever hear of a, 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 an author, speaker guy called uh, Wayne Dyer? Did you ever hear of him? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Did, did you hear the story of him going to his father's grave? No, I haven't. What is that? So this guy was a kind of like a very early self-help kind of guru in yep. his 60s. Um, and he, he was... His father abandoned him and his him and his his uh, brothers and sisters and his mum, and uh, he tells the story, a very strange story of coincidences. Um, it's on it's on YouTube if you want to check it out. He was interviewed on, not Oprah, but he was interview, interviewed on a show. Um, a very strange set of coincidences sent him to uh, set him to his. Father, got him to his father's grave and he carried um, hatred towards his father for the whole of his life and he went he went to the grave to to pee on it yep. <laughs> and he before he did that he ranted and raved and shouted at at his at his father in you know at his father's grave and then something happened uh and he let the, or the anger went yeah and his and his world changed completely now, he didn't go, most self-help gurus would say, all right, well, you've got to send all these affirmations and you've got to be grateful for this and you've got to, you've got to let this go. And, you know, you'd have all these techniquey, rubbishy stuff, right? Yes. This, this was a spontaneous forgiveness yes. that overwhelmed uh, Wayne Dyer to, after two hours ranting at his father, his dead father in the grave. Uh, and he had a spontaneous um, yeah, a spontaneous forgiveness, and uh, and and the the cloud of his anger left him, mm -hmm. uh, and and his and his life his life took off from that place. So it was like a you know it, it was like the proverbial backpack full of bricks, and and then his his uh, his spirit soared without that heavy baggage inside them. And it was a magical, a magical event for him. Um, and I've had a, I've had a, a few, uh, I've had a few of those that aren't quite as easy to describe uh, as, as that Wayne Dyer one, um, and perhaps not quite as 
easily understandable because there'd been more kind of internal stuff going within me. But if we can let that those comments that sting us so much, like I, I, I was furious with that woman when you shared that. Um, but if we can let that go, not in our heads, but in our hearts. Yes. That that's what takes us to a different. That's what takes us to a different level. Correct. Um, it was also I was trying to see from her point of view. Um, yeah. And you know, really trying to look at. What, where could we find either some level of common ground or, or how could I, um, uh, it, could I affect her belief? And at times you can't affect other people's beliefs. No. You can only affect your own. And so that was truly kind of, like you said, one of those aha moments where I knew I could affect my own belief. I knew I was going to say what I said, which I thought was the best response at the time is I don't agree with you. Um, and I'm sorry you, you feel that way. Um, and I, I needed to walk away at that point yeah. for a little bit to compose myself. Yeah. But, I, I, yeah go ahead. Yeah, I, I was, um, I talked about this in another podcast recently. Some, this was uh, somebody that I know said to me something. Um, uh, that person said, well, you've never had any You've you've never had anything to 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 struggle with, yeah. um, uh, uh, and then she uh, uh, and she went to money. So what she did was she projected her own security about money onto me and said, "Well, you haven't had any money worries, so you've had nothing to worry about." And I was speechless. Uh, this uh, this was probably about. Well, about eight, ten years ago, I was speechless. This woman, you, you, you found it. In, you, you know, you, you came back with a gentle uh, response. I, I just, I was speechless. I, I was furious, and I just thought, well, not furious, or I just thought, you can't, you haven't got a clue. You really haven't got a, a, a clue. And and how how dare you be so dismissive? You know, mm-hmm. um, and when when you talked about the. So, so those moments really hurt. Um, uh, when you talked about disenfranchised grief not being an acknowledged by society, I, I thought, well, that stuff doesn't really hurt me. You Was, know, it, it, it depends. You know, we've talked to that in order to be chosen, you have to be unchosen. And that's part of the disenfranchised grief at times too. We just have what I call special circumstances that, you know, when I was born again, um, people would always say, uh, oh, you've got such wonderful parents. You know, they took you in when you you were orphaned and you needed this um, place to be. Aren't these wonderful people? And on some levels, yeah, that that becomes a part of the adoption legacy, but it's not necessarily um, acknowledging as we do today, the loss of that relationship with your first family, your birth family. International adoptees at times have even more significant issues because they're also losing maybe their first language and their first culture. Um, You know, we've done a lot of international adoptions here in the United States uh, where children have been brought from other countries too. And so there's all of these issues that this adoption legacy that we all have to to talk about and deal with. And as you said, there's disenfranchised grief too because many transracially adopted children don't physically resemble their families either. So there is an obvious um, indicator at times is, well, where did you come from? Yeah. Uh, and how do you really fit in this family? Uh, and you know, almost to the other point that when I was placed for adoption, they used to do matching. They would match you to at least the physical coloring to uh, of one of your parents. 
Now, my adoptive father was Greek, and I I'm, um, have very dark hair and very um, dark brown eyes. And at, when I was first born, I was described as a swarthy-skinned um, baby, and I have very curly hair as well. So they thought I might have been biracial. So they gave me to this family with my dad being Greek because he had what I call the permanent suntime suntan. He had a darker complexion and he had dark curly hair like mine. Um, and so that becomes something too of where they felt that would make it look like I, I would have been part of this family. I do not have um, a dark complexion at this point in my life. But those, those types of things where people again were trying to make you fit, um, trying to make sure that um, socially it would be okay for you to be acknowledged as a piece of this. That's part of the legacy and the history of adoption that um, we've been trying to not only acknowledge but, but work on as far as uh, changing how the policies and practice happen, but also how the personal interactions between people happen too. The, um, it's interesting because I, uh, I, it just goes to the point that about every adoption being different. So I've had, I've not had been on the receiving end of many of those comments saying you should be grateful, um, da, 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 da. Um, but I, I see a lot of people angry so so they they feel like they that they're angry about the adoption mm -hmm. uh, about they're angry about life or that you know they're having a tough time let's just say that they're having a tough time and then people tell them that they should be grateful and then um that kind of that just cheeses them off even more yes and and, it, and so it, it puts so then they become angry with other people. So they've gone from a position where they're just angry towards the birth mother, um, uh, or they're you know they're angry about being adopted, and and then they go to a point about being they're angry about the world that doesn't kind of, as you say, you know that doesn't acknowledge them, um, and, and thinks that they should think differently. And it just seems to me to be a spiral of darkness mm -hmm. so uh I, I, the, it's a vortex so we're just going to disappear further and further down down the vortex um and like i've been i've been down these vortices these dark vortices yes. but 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 different ones you know not, not that particular one, because I've never been told that I should be grateful. So I've yeah, never, yeah. I've never, I've never pushed back about the, about the gratitude. Yeah. But I've been down different vortices, dark vortices, and they only go dark. Only, it only gets worse, and it only gets darker. And in that darkness, I can see less and less clearly, um, and it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So this, for me, was about the. Um, you know, reading the primal wound, yeah. uh, and, and 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 until I realised that the only thing that this is just purely just my experience, right? The only thing that was wounded, I didn't think I didn't feel wounded till I read the primal wound. I I'm quite a sensitive and gullible soul, so I took in that message that I I was wounded. I therefore believed I was wounded. That was a dark vortex which I disappeared down. Uh, until I realised it, it was totally, it was totally untrue. The only thing that was wounded was my was my ego, and and that's not my ego. That's not who I am. So, um, does that make any sense? Yeah, of course it does. And I think that the other thing you're referring to now, and I'm going to use again more of a um, academic term. It's called identity formation that at times um, adopted individuals, because we have this um, presence in two families, we will always have two sets of parents. So, you know, I've been asked many times, well, 
who are your who are your real mom and, and dad and i tend to use musical metaphors sometimes and there was a musician named frank zappa that was around when i was younger and frank had a lyric that said you know is it a real poncho or a sears poncho and that's kind of where i went with some of this was you know how do you define what a real parent is so it got me to thinking about some of that too and what i decided is my two sets of parents had complementary roles in my life one gave me life and my physical and some of my intellectual capacity through genetics and the other one um, had all the social and emotional pieces so i have birth parents who i have a biological connection with but then i have adoptive parents and for me because i was adopted as a young young child the memories of mom and dad are with them and those are my social and emotional parents. So my adoptive parents are my mom and dad because you know they were there for the first day of kindergarten and they were there when I graduated from high school. Both of them walked me down the aisle when I got married. So when you're thinking about all of those things, with that, um, again, identity formation piece, um, how do you define some of those roles that, that children need in their lives? And can there be more than one Set of parents or more than one person in that role we we tend to be very insular with our nuclear families and you know there's a mom and a dad or there's there's things that are expected we have very diverse families in the united states right now too um, as far as lgbtq families you have single parents raising children you have parents who have died um, and then um, parents who get remarried and do step parent adoptions there's all of this that gets mixed in there, but what you're describing to me is how do we integrate and how do we integrate that into who we become as, as people? And it, yes, it can become very dark and scary in those vortexes if you believe that that's what, what your life is supposed to look like. Or as you did, Simon, you can take it and you know chew on it for a while and look at it and, and decide that there can be a different outcome. So different outcomes. Um, what, one of my concerns around stuff like this, um, so like e even the word uh, disenfranchised grief is, is it becomes a thing and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now that hasn't, it, it hasn't for me. You know, but the wounded, the, the primal wound has, it, it became a thing for me for a while, right? So I talk about this like it was like a, a trauma snowball. The, yeah. Yeah. So uh, a, a trauma ball, let's call it a trauma ball. So I read this book, um, whether Nancy Varia meant um, me to think like this or not, I'm not sure. But it was like I took, a, a, it was like I was making a snowball but a, a, a snowball out of trauma, a trauma ball. Um, so I scooped up some, some trauma in my hands, like, like snow. I rounded it up between my palms and then I rolled it along the ground, like you yeah. when you're making the base for a, um, a, a, a like a, a base for, um, uh, for a, snow, a snowman or snow person in, in today's mm -hmm. politically correct times. Um, uh, so, uh, so that's what I, that's what I did, obviously in, 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 involuntarily, I didn't do that by choice. I didn't make, I, this wasn't a conscious decision. I didn't paint myself into a dark and darker corner. Um, but, um, on, on, on purpose, but then somehow, you know, like I went on some, I went on some courses and it was like. Uh, bringing an industrial heater yep. that instantly zapped the snowball trauma. Uh, it zapped it and and it melted, uh, and and it melt the heat melted it, and then so what was left it went from snow to a puddle, and then we kept I kept the heater on, and and the 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 heat um, led the the water to evaporate, and there was nothing there. Now, so that's what I did, right? Um, one of my concerns is, 
when we talk about trauma, when we talk about disenfranchised grief, is we kind of like we make it a thing. And that thing becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we buy into it. And only because I did this myself. So, you know, uh-huh. I'm holding my hands up, right? I did this myself. So where where is the hope? Where where does where does understanding lead to breakthrough? Where's where's the hope in disenfranchised grief? Oh, there's lots of hope in disenfranchised grief. It depends again on how uh, people choose to address it. Um, I'm currently involved in um, a little piece of work. It's one of my called my side gigs where I am actually um, teaching a curriculum that's based on uh, really teaching therapists how to engage uh, people who have specific adoption issues and help them move through those issues to a different space that you've reached on your own, Simon. But at times, again, these are dealing with um, either younger children or um, teenagers who are still struggling and trying to teach them different techniques and maybe questions to ask and assessments. Um, And what I think happens with with that is how do you motivate someone to be able to move through those vortexes or, or, as you said, acknowledge that this is something that you you maybe confront, but then you move beyond that. Um, And and this particular uh, curriculum talks about therapeutic parenting. You you engage the parents and you try to change some of their expectations about what the child should be able to do, that you get the child engaged in a way of maybe interacting differently with their life circumstance and maybe the family that they're in. And I see that, again, as part of that foundation of moving through disenfranchised grief, because I've never been able to change the fact that I'm illegitimate. What I've had to change is how, how do I react to that and maybe how do I integrate that fact into my life going forward? If I had allowed that one woman statement to uh, really impact me, I, I maybe wouldn't have had my two children. And that would have made me very sad. So I see sometimes that people are able to move beyond it. Often what I experience though, and maybe you didn't um, need to pursue, is people get stuck in the problem. They get stuck in either the diagnosis, they get stuck in an issue, and they make it um, insurmountable. How will I ever get over this? Like I said, I will always be illegitimate. You know, I can't change that. There are pieces and aspects of who we are. I'm, uh, you know, I identify as female. I don't want to change that, and that will always be a piece of who I am. So there's these concrete pieces that if we're constantly in conflict about them, that's when we can't move forward. It's how do you, as you are going through your life, review those and then be able to say, hmm, you know, maybe this is the time when I can do something um, different, feel something different, and um, it doesn't have to have this level, level of negative impact or impact at all on my life. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm looking for the, I guess I'm looking for the silver bullet on, on this. Um, uh, uh, and I would say this, there is only one silver bullet in this area, and it's insight. Yep. Okay. Um, so when we see something differently, right, so one of my big, uh, huge insights, and this is just so obvious um, that people will, I'm sure, well, I did the first time I heard it, right? I, I will just ignore it. It's, it's just so obvious. Like most of us aren't choosing what we do, how we feel or what we think most of the time. Right? So... If we're not choosing, it's not our fault. So going back to the example of that woman that um, was said those, you know, ridiculous, ridiculously ridiculous, hurtful. I mean, she she wasn't she she wasn't, you know, if she'd known that she wasn't choosing in that time, she had been conditioned. 
she she yeah. had, unfortunately she uh, swallowed some uh, relig- religious dogma um which led her to say what she said right and we're we're all conditioned like we're all conditioned to a le- lesser or greater extent um but we don't see our own conditioning but we see other people's conditioning really easily because it's different to ours so um the 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 silver bullet with all this stuff as far as i can tell in my experience is an insight so when we see something differently it's going to change and so we can try different kind of things different strategies so like for but by strategies i mean podcast audiobooks courses therapy support groups we can try all these different we can try all these different tactics um uh, like you you know you're you're talking about a curriculum a curriculum for uh, therapists yeah. so the curriculum for therapists is is all about helping people to have an insight helping kids to have an insight to see yeah. something differently so you know uh, there's so shakespeare said something like um we have uh, there is no meaning other than we the mean the the the, uh, the meaning that we give something, so yeah. you can say, you can say, and like I'm gonna, you can say it, it, the tone kind of gives it away. You can say, we can say, illegitimate, illegitimate, yeah. or we can say, illegitimate. You know, yeah. it's the difference. <laughs> that, that, that's the difference. That's the meaning that we give it. We can say illegitimate, illegitimate. So what? There's no. There's, there's no that, there's no judgment behind saying illegitimate, but there is an element of judgment behind saying illegitimate. You know that that's the kind of the meaning that we're giving stuff, um, and uh, and and when we give stuff, uh, when we find a different meaning for when we have an insight that leads us to have a different, give something a different meaning, um, or like when Wayne Dyer has that instantaneous mm-hmm. um f- uh, instantaneous forgiveness towards his father for leaving him and leaving his family that's when that that's when we change that for me that seems to be what drives our change so we're all everybody's obsessed with the kind of the behavior stuff and 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 the feeling stuff but what actually changes is when we have an insight we have an insight about our identity that's those those are the the the, the, the that's the ultimate leverage point so yeah that's and kind I of think you, you know it's kind of um do you do you play the old tapes or the old movies you know do you go back and re, relive uh, maybe different life experiences and try to see if you can make a different outcome appear and you can't necessarily change what really happened, um, but you can change how you react to what happened. And that at times, like you said, is the silver bullet is, um, you know, this drives my kids nuts when I talk about it. I, I, that illegitimacy piece is a real shameful piece that I still carry, but I learned to react differently to it. And it doesn't define um, my behaviors as much as it used to. It doesn't define some of the curiosity and risks that I'm willing to take maybe with others. And um, sometimes, again, outside of this forum, it would be something I would never uh, maybe share with someone unless it came up based, again, on some discussion about adoption and something else. Uh, The other thing, like you said, is sometimes we tend to hold on to certain aspects of how we've been defined or how we define ourselves. And, you know, those need to be reviewed. And like you said, that silver bullet pieces of looking at the forgiveness, forgiveness and moving on. Um, There's another training tool that I use and there's a woman being interviewed in it. um, And she mentioned that she said, you know, um, uh, one of her aha moments was when her minister had said to her, you know, it's like you're drinking the poison and expecting the other person to die. 
It's really, you're ingesting that into yourself and you're expecting the other person to be affected, but it's really affecting you. And I see that as kind of the basis of, of what many of us are struggling with is, you know, what are those situations where other people have made us angry, hurt us, done something. And if we can't change their view and we can't change what really happened, what do we need to change? And it's that internal struggle and hopefully even um, the forgiveness of ourselves. Yeah. I'm going to lighten this up a bit because I've heard that poison okay. thing. I've heard that poison thing. Okay. Uh, uh, and it made, I, I love the, the clarity of that. But knowing the clarity of that and knowing that it's true doesn't stop me doing it. So we're having some building work done. Uh, and I'm using, uh, well, after being very angry about lots of different things with this, um, mm -hmm. this builder, um, I decided to use it as uh, an opportunity for growth, this, uh, this okay. project. Um, and I thought that was really, I thought I was very proud of myself in doing that. But about three days later, I was straight back. I was straight back into the anger play. <laughs> How dare he? How dare he do this? You know, there's been a, there's been um, three or four different things, and um, uh, I, I, they have come up to the top. Uh, my frustration, yes. um, my, my frustration has come up to the top, and then I've had. I brought it out into the daylight. I've had the heater on it, you know, the the, yep. the the trauma snowball heater. I've had that on it a couple of times, um, and some of them have gone, but there's still a few. There's still a few there. Uh, there's, there's still a few there. But the one I'm going to the, the uh, so one of the things he he um, um, he threatened not to uh, come to do the rest of the job ah, okay. until we paid him a, uh, we paid one of his interim bills. Uh, and, and the bill was, one of the bills was a week old, but he hadn't actually sent it. Oh. Um, and one of, one of the bills was for some stuff that hadn't been completed. Uh, and I was incensed with this guy, you know, that he was holding us to ransom. But I, I figured yesterday is that sometimes I would use money. I would use money that against him as well. So I would use his last payment. Yeah. I don't know if he's listening um, to this show, uh, but um, I I might use I might use I might use that last payment to get him to come and do the snagging. You know the snagging. So the bits. So he he finished the job, yeah. uh, and I and I owe some money. And I would, but I would hold that against him. I would say, right, well, um, when you've when you've put that right and that right and that right, then I'll pay you the remaining two thousand mm -hmm. pounds or whatever. So I would use, I, I would hold him to ransom in exactly the same way. Yeah, so, yeah. That, so that was another little moment when I realised how silly my thinking is, and you know, like all my righteous indignation towards this right. bit. Correct. So that's, yeah, uh, that's great insight. <laughs> it, it, it's so I'm still not obviously I'm still not completely over um, my frustration with this builder, but a few of the things have come up to the to surface, uh, and um, I've I've kind of I've let them go or realised there was nothing there. I think yes. that's the thing. Yeah. There's nothing there. It's just a thought that I've made up um, and. Uh, uh, you know, in, in the thick of that thought, I can't right. see. Right. And it's it sometimes um, looking for those positives. Um, one of the things that I, I identified about myself is, you know, I lived for 36 years not knowing what my nationalities were. And that's again, too, there's, there's a lot of um, loyalty to being, you know, uh, of a certain nationality and I knew that I was raised in a German and a Greek household. So those were parts of my identity, but that wasn't quote my genetic um, nationality. And where that took me, Simon, kind of to, to lighten it up too, is I was curious about everybody's food. 
I love to eat. So I've learned how to cook many different styles of food because I didn't know whether or not that was my nationality or not. So to take maybe a life experience of where there is this quote void or this deficit and what do you do about it? I could stay angry, but I, you know, I've um, learned to um, be able to have an, a good life skill and talent. I like to cook and I've learned to cook well. And so I can share that with other people too. And often people do enjoy that. So I think that's another piece of this um, identity that you know you have to look at where where have you been maybe able to celebrate things that you've done based on quote this deficit so if i maybe hadn't been um, unaware of my nationalities i wouldn't have embraced food as much because food to me is a lot of ways of how you research culture well um i'm just looking at the time thinking maybe we should bring this in we've been we've been on for about an hour i don't know um, what, what are, are there any things that you'd uh, obviously just to be clear listeners there's as usual I, every episode that we do right there's, uh, there's lots of links in the show notes so that you can get in touch with the, um, the guests so you can check out them check them out on social media so, they, so you can check out their, if they work for a, a, an organisation as um, Angie does she, she, she's the director of a, of a a private adoption agency so there's 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 links in every episode for so you can find out more but um uh and but before we wrap up is there anything else that you'd like to share with us angie um i guess the the thing i want to encourage people to do and it's it's a word we've used quite a bit is to stay curious rather than judgmental or fearful i realize that people have to pace that curiosity but you're often going to be able to open yourself up and find um, contentment, at least. Uh, not everyone finds joy, not everyone finds happiness, but they can find contentment. And I think the hardest, hardest struggle that many of us who have been part of the um, adoption triad, uh, and particularly adoptees, is to find um, some acceptance and contentment as to who we are and what we've accomplished in our lives. My mentor, or one of my mentors says, uh, happiness and sad sadness are merely the high and low tides on a big sea called contentment. Yeah. Yep. It's why we call it an adoption journey. Life is a journey, again, not at me, although to use one of those kitschy phrases, life is a journey, not a destination. And so if you can view some of that too and always look for um, things that can be um, investigated, hopefully with curiosity and to maybe come with an unexpected positive outcome as well as maybe a challenge. And also, I think part of what we've discussed today, too, is to not always accept other people's uh, views and definitions of your circumstance. Yeah. There's 7 billion different versions of yes. reality on this planet. Yes. Uh, uh, and I know that, but it doesn't stop the other 6.999, whatever it is. Sometimes yeah. She's in yeah. work. Thanks a lot, Angela. You've been uh, you've been an absolute star. Thank you for having me on today, Simon. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot, listeners. See you soon. Bye bye.